that you may objectively believe that the United States is engaged in this multidimensional competition with China and Russia everywhere and on every issue, um, but that such an expansive, indeed maximalist conception of competition doesn't lend itself to a strategy. Imagine what kind of conversation we potentially might have had if the United States and China had collaborated at the outset of the COVID-19 pandemic the same way that they collaborated in the immediate aftermath of the global financial crisis. Hey, welcome back to the Modern War Institute podcast. I'm John Amble, Editorial Director at MWI, and I'm joined on this episode by Ollie Wine. He is a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council, and I'm really proud to say also a non-resident fellow at the Modern War Institute. His recent research has focused on great power competition. Now, this is a phrase that many listeners will have heard with increasing frequency. It has become the sort of go-to lens through which the U.S. defense and national security establishments view the world, and also a framing mechanism within which to think about and plan U.S. interactions with other actors. But is it a strategy? Have we truly defined what great power competition means in a practical sense? And are there practical drawbacks to this conceptual understanding of our relations with countries like China and Russia? We discuss these and other questions in a conversation I really enjoyed. Before we get to that conversation, really quickly, I have just a couple notes. First, if you aren't subscribed to the MWI podcast, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, TuneIn, literally anywhere you get your podcast so you don't miss an episode. And lastly, as always, what you hear in this episode are the views of the participants and don't represent those of West Point, the Army, or any other agency of the U.S. government. All right, here's my conversation with Ollie Wine. Ollie, thanks so much for uh, joining us once again on the MWI podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So the reason that I was really excited to kind of bring you on once again, as, as listeners might remember, about a year and a half ago, we had you on talking kind of China stuff, which is an area of your expertise. Um, another one that you've really been spending a lot of time, I understand, sort of digging into and researching is this notion of great power competition, which is the buzzword du jour, um, you know, that everybody is going to come across if they if they read pretty widely uh, in the in the in the defense space, but it's also something that I don't think we've done a great job of really defining yet. So, um, at the risk of of just kind of throwing you into the deep end uh, in this conversation, why don't we start with that question? What what is great power competition? So if I it's if I were if you had asked me that question six months ago or a year ago, I I, I I'd hazard to say that I might have a clearer answer, but just I think that the more you know, the more that I've tried to, you know, the more that I've gone questing after a, a definition, I think the more I, the more the ambiguities of the term have come into sharp relief. And and I and I hasten to note at the outset that it would be you know, to issue a couple of caveats. One, it would be unreasonable to uh, it would be unreasonable to call for the kind of precise definition that you might encounter in a dictionary. Uh, number one, and and number two, I think that we should allow that virtually any construct, virtually any term, any phrase, uh, we, we should uh, we should permit we, we should permit a certain amount of inbuilt elasticity. And constructs uh, have a certain amount of inbuilt ambiguity. They evolve uh, as in response to uh, just the passage of time or the the emergence of certain developments, and so. So again, we're not looking for a textbook definition. It would be unreasonable to to venture for one, and and we should permit terms or grant terms a certain elasticity. So I guess what I maybe I'll start with what I feel is the sort of the underlying sort of underlying uh, connective tissue of that that weaves together various interpretations of great power competition that I've seen, and then sort of expanding outwards to broach some of the ambiguities in the term. So. There isn't necessarily a um, convergence among the various stakeholders in the U.S. government or in the analytical community as to as to how to de- define great power competition. But most interpretations that I've seen either begin with or at some point broach some some variant or version of the following proposition: that the world's two foremost authoritarian powers, namely China and Russia, both individually and increasingly in partnership, are 
challenging U.S. national interests and challenging certain aspects of the U.S.-led post-war order. And they're doing so uh, militarily, they're doing so economically, they're doing so uh, diplomatically. And so, th- so I think that that's sort of the baseline is, again, it's, it's an emphasis on China and Russia. It's contesting U.S. national interests, contesting aspects of the post-war order across a full range of dimensions, or maybe even sort of the, the dime spectrum, so diplomatic, information, military, and, and economic. And at first blush, it would seem difficult to dispute that uh, assessment. So you look at China, and it is an increasingly formidable economic and technological competitor. It is uh, in the military realm. It continues to militarize the South China Sea. Um, it is uh, its military modernization is continuing apace. Uh, diplomatically, it's embarked upon a much more aggressive form of diplomacy, so-called wolf warrior diplomacy. It's using economic coercion to uh, secure acquiescence to its strategic preferences. Uh, if you look at Russia, Russia you know, might not possess the the overall material wherewithal that China does, but it nonetheless is a formidable competitor in its own right. Uh, it is hiving off uh, territory in its near abroad. It is engaging in disinformation campaigns to undercut uh, Western democracies and to tout uh, the virtues of its own model, so to speak, or at least to sow chaos and dissent within uh, democratic systems. Um, it is abetting and supporting a brutal uh, regime in Syria, so on and so forth. So uh, I don't think that there are many observers who would dispute that China and Russia are contesting U.S. national interests in the post-war order. But when you actually scrutinize the term, it's some of its analytical and, and therefore it follows prescriptive limitations start coming into view. Um, and, and I think that there are a few there are a few limitations that I w- or a few weaknesses or, or potential weaknesses that I, w- that I would spotlight. Uh, the first is that many conceptions of great power competition depict China and Russia in a manner that's more likely to elicit defensive or even alarmist U.S. responses than to generate proactive, confident U.S. policies. And, and those interpretations may further constrain America's room for external maneuver to the extent that they accelerate this ongoing rapprochement between China and Russia. So that's, that's one set of uh, concerns. A second is that uh, many of the conceptions of great power competition that I've encountered, they don't um, they don't lend themselves to clear delimitations of geographical purviews of competition to uh, uh, to sort of hierarchies of priorities. And they essentially say that the United States is contesting China and Russia in uh, in virtually every regional theater and every functional domain. And when you have a strategic construct, or what at least purports to be a strategic construct that is so uh, uh, almost infinitely elastic, um, it risks committing the United States to an all-encompassing yet poorly specified competition with two very formidable powers. And that kind of quest could undermine America's sense of strategic balance. Uh, It could prove economically taxing. And especially in a post-pandemic world, um, it could elicit significant opposition from public opinion. Um, And then the last the last sort of critique or main critique I would have or concern that I would that I would raise is um, is one that I think has become especially pronounced with uh, with COVID-19. And that is to the extent that we accept the transnational challenges are increasingly going to shape geopolitics. Most conceptions of great power competition discount the extent to which the United States will undercut its own vital national interests if its relations with China and Russia devolve into a kind of calcified antagonism. And so in order for so, so I guess, and, and then I'll stop here. I think that great power competition is, um, I think, is perfectly fine as a descriptor, and that is to say, to the extent that it, uh, to the extent that it distills uh, uh, post Cold War hubris and critiques post Cold War hubris, and to the extent that it captures, at least in broad brushstrokes, a core element of contemporary geopolitics, I think that it's a, it's a sensible descriptor. Um, but in order to I- evolve from a plausible, descri- a plausible descriptor of what we're seeing into a strategic concept that can define U.S. foreign policy for some time to come, it'll have to undergo, I think, considerable analytical refinement and interrogation. So we need to determine, for example, um, where will we, con- where and when will we contest uh, China and Russia? Uh, we can't. Um, I-, I don't think that strategic solvency would dictate that we try to engage in a symmetric response to every Chinese and Russian 
pronouncement and action. So we have to decide when and where to contest. Um, we have to establish a hierarchy of prior, a hierarchy of priorities uh, to help us uh, decide when and where we respond. And I think ultimately we have to decide what exactly it is that we are contesting over. And and here too, I've seen a range of very expansive interpretations. So at the at the less expansive but nonetheless ambitious. Uh, end of the spectrum, there are some interpretations that say that the objective of great power competition is to prevent the emergence of a hegemon in Eurasia. So, and and more specifically, prevent the emergence of Chinese hegemony in the Indo-Pacific and Russian hegemony in Eastern Europe. But at the other end of the spectrum, um, I've seen a number of interpretations of great power competition suggesting that the United States has to contest with China and Russia militarily, economically, diplomatically, uh, globally, and indefinitely. Um, And essentially what you're saying then is that the United States is contesting with China and Russia to determine the future of the international system. Now, you may believe that proposition, and that is to say you may objectively believe that the United States is engaged in this multidimensional competition with China and Russia everywhere and on every issue, Um, but that such an expansive, indeed maximalist conception of competition doesn't lend itself to a strategy. So um, so I guess to recap, and then I'll stop, is I think most definitions of great power competition stress, uh, or they, they prioritize China and Russia, they look at the ways in which China and Russia are contesting U.S. national interests in the international system. The concerns that I have are if we embrace a construct that, based on a, a range of mainstream interpretations, um, doesn't seem to be delimited geographically, doesn't seem to be delimited functionally, and doesn't seem to articulate clear objectives, um, it, it's, it could be a recipe for a strategic uh, and fiscal insolvency. So there's there's a ton to unpack there, um, and I'm hoping we're going to get a chance to get to uh, most or not, or most or all of it. One of the things that I found really interesting about um, about your answer was whether or not this term great power competition is more effective as a descriptor of uh, that sort of um, conceptualizes, helps us conceptualize and focus existing foreign policy and national security initiatives and activities, or if it's something that will help us define new initiatives and activities. Um, And I think that the consensus view from people that are paying attention to this right now is that, yes, maybe, as you said, one day it will help us do that, but at this point, it it's it's really limited to being able to kind of again sort of frame the things that we're doing already um, and sort of along those lines. You know, we saw this we saw this phrase uh, first emerge. I mean, it's sort of always been lurking in the background for a number of years, but it was it had a uh, a pretty central place in the 2017 national security strategy. It was also discussed and and used as sort of a framing mechanism of the subsequent uh, national defense strategy and national military strategies published in 2018. Um, there's been a lot of talk about competition, a great power competition within the sort of defense space, um, but taking kind of a, you know, widening the aperture a little bit and focusing, taking a look at what um, former Deputy National Security Advisor Ben Rhodes called the blob, the sort of foreign policy and national security establishment. Do you see... Um, Entities like our, our like the the State Department, um, the sort of the institutions and agencies that wield non-military instruments of national power coalescing around this concept as much as seems to be happening within DoD. And, and I, I would say that there is a actually a striking degree of uh, convergence around this abstraction. And it, but and I should say before just elaborating something that I something that strikes me is that. This construct, particularly in this environment, it, it, the emergence of any, the emergence of any focal point is always notable. Uh, just given that, you know, ever since the dissolution of the Soviet Union, the United States has, it seems, been perpetually in search of a, a new orient, a new orienting construct. And I think that during the, you know, during the 1990s, it it didn't, it was questing after a, a new construct. With the attacks of 9/11, uh, it seemed at least temporarily that this. Uh, global war on terrorism might provision a new ballast, but it, for a number of reasons, it proved uh, not to be a ballast. And so, I think that gray power competition it um, it allows um, it allows a range of stakeholders to 
uh, to feel a sense of uh, sort of a new sense of coherence and a comforting sense of coherence. Uh, I think that all, you know, all you know, policymakers like to have some kind of North Stars or some kind of orienting constructs. Um, but I think that the emergence of this focal point is especially striking in the contemporary environment when a political polarization is as intense as it is, and when there are there are so many disagreements over uh, America's role in the world, over foreign policy priorities, uh, and so, given the extent of political polarization, given the just the range and, and intensity of disagreements over America's role in the world, the ways in which it should respond to particular challenges. I think that the not only the emergence of a focal point in this contested political environment is quite striking, but the degree of traction that it has gained across ideological lines and across uh, sort of the interagency space is quite striking. Um, and so I, I would say based on, uh, and I should say based on anecdotal impressions, uh, but based on anecdotal impressions and conversations I've had uh, with uh, you know with friends who are are serving in various agencies in government, I think the great power competition has definitely become a core construct guiding at least how we're thinking about our our role in the world. But what I would say is that there is at least for the time being there seems to be an imbalance, and I think that this gets to your question. There does seem to be an imbalance between the uh, the prioritization of various levers of power to achieve these somewhat unspecified uh, objectives of great power competition. And um, I, I think that if you look on the military side of the ledger, um, there is a very active discussion about sort of various types of weapon systems that we might invest in to, uh, to, to buttress our military power and to deter uh, Chinese and or Russian aggression. Uh, there's been talk of a uh, Pacific uh, deterrence initiative uh, that would be included in the next uh, uh, fiscal year NDAA, uh, and there, so there, are, there's a lot of talk about um, sort of modernizing our military. And now, of course, you know, with our withdrawal from the the INF, there's now a discussion about uh, missile sort of missile systems, advanced missile systems that we could deploy to the Indo-Pacific. So it seems that there has been a lot of discussion about the kinetic ways in which we might contest with China and Russia. But I th I think that there hasn't been as much of a there hasn't been as much of a discussion of the the economic instruments, the diplomatic instruments. And so I do feel that that imbalance in prioritization um, necessarily will yield um, an imbalance in our competitive policy. And I fear uh, particularly economically and diplomatically, um, and, and I, I feel this particularly vis-a-vis -vis China, um, while there are stirrings in, in the United States uh, about how the United States can sort of stimulate uh, uh, innovation at home, how it can develop sort of a coherent, you know, coherent offerings or alternative offerings in the geoeconomic and technological space to what China is offering. I do fear that economically, technologically and diplomatically, I do feel that a lot of America's competitive efforts vis-a-vis -vis China have focused more on stymieing China and have focused more on dissuading others from joining Chinese-led initiatives than on promulgating those of our own. And the problem with that, the problem with that disparity is that even if even if the countries we're trying to bring to our side may share many of our apprehensions about, say, the Belt and Road Initiative or about Huawei, um, in the absence of a clearly constructed, articulated, and ready-to-go set of alternatives from the United States, um, our critiques tend to fall flat. Um, and so, one, in order to signal confidence, we need to be able to go to countries that China is wooing via, uh, largely via economic and technological inducements. And ideally, we would say, um, if you want to incorporate Huawei into your 5G networks, that's your sovereign prerogative. If you want to become a participating country in the Belt and Road Initiative, that's your sovereign prerogative. But the United States, ideally in conjunction with longstanding uh, partners and allies, we feel that we have offerings that are more sustainable, more transparent, and we would like to, we would like you to consider those as well. Whatever you end up deciding is your decision, but here's what we have to offer. Um, and when you do that, I think that you signal confidence. Uh, and I, I, I worry that we're not we're not there yet. And I think that we also something that's becoming more apparent is that implicit in, in implicit in the various conceptions of of great power competition that I've come across is that the United States will be able to assemble a large coalition uh, to counterbalance 
various uh, Chinese maneuvers and various Russian maneuvers. Uh, but it's not clear to me that the United States is going to have success in assembling such a coalition. Um, if you look at just it, its successor, I would say really its lack thereof, you know, vis-a-vis uh, China, even those countries that have grave apprehensions about China's military modernization, its strategic ambitions, uh, they have been very reluctant to sign up, for example, with tariffs. They've been very reluctant to, reluctant to issue blanket bans on Huawei. They want to maintain their uh, their commercial and technological ties with Beijing. And so it seems to me that if the United States wants to compete sustainably with China, um, it can't expect a sort of a uniform coalition of the willing that will go along with it regardless of what it does. I think that it will have to be judicious in which fights it picks. It will have to assemble coalitions, sometimes ad hoc. It will have to be creative in its diplomacy. And it's also going to have to be patient. I think it's going to have to recognize that increasingly, Many countries, uh, many countries are saying we, we reject this putative choice between Washington and Beijing and we want to forge our own path and we don't want to be instrumentalized as levers of strategic competition. We want to forge our own way. And when we believe that it is in our national interest to align ourselves with the United States, we will do so. If we believe that our national interests dictate occasional alignment with Beijing, we will pursue that option. And I think that we're seeing that type of, we're seeing more and more the middle countries, particularly as the as in light of the pandemic. I think more and more countries are disillusioned by um, by what they're seeing in both Washington and Beijing. They're disillusioned by Beijing's wolf warrior diplomacy, but they also are disillusioned by uh, America's increasingly unpredictable foreign policy, but also a portrait of domestic dysfunction and chaos. And if you turn to Washington and are disillusioned, and if you turn to Beijing and are disillusioned, then you have to ask, well, what can we as middle powers do on issues of mitigating climate change, uh, speeding up uh, funding for uh, a COVID-19 vaccine, uh, stemming the, the proliferation of weapons of mass destruction? What can middle powers do individually and in conjunction with one another um, without the buy-in of Washington and Beijing? So I, I think that a lot of countries... Um, they're not going to be in a U.S. block. They're not going to be in a Chinese block. They are going to be in a more sort of fluid block uh, with a rotating cast of members in which their alignments are less predictable. They are more issue specific. They are more on a case by case basis. And and that reality is going to be distressing psychologically for the United States, particularly when you have longstanding allies who make common cause on occasion with Beijing. But I, I think that um, diplomatic success in this newly competitive and fraught landscape, it's going to be incremental. It's going to be on a case-by-case basis. And success is is likely to be the accumulation of a series of incremental small victories that don't necessarily grab the headlines. It's not going to consist of ticker tape parades and sweeping declarations. Sure. Um, you know, you... You mentioned diplomatic success, which is, again, one of the instruments of national power. It's, it strikes me that at some point, and maybe maybe they have to some degree, but each of the sort of plank holders within the generally, you know, broadly speaking, the foreign policy enterprise in the United States is going to have to come up with sort of its own definition of great power competition in a way that's useful and can guide uh, that particular plank holder's activities, uh, ideally, each of those definitions um, will complement one another. The uh, Specifically with respect to the military, with, with respect to the Defense Department, um, there's been a real and concerted effort to kind of define competition, um, which is a difficult challenge for the military because the military fights. You know, that's, that's what that's what our armed services exist for. That's what they do. Um, as a function of that fact, um, the joint services have seemed to define competition by 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 sort of describing the way it relates to conflict, the thing that they're sort of more naturally rooted in. And so you have this notion of the competition continuum, which essentially shows cooperation, transitioning into competition, transitioning into conflict, and joint doctrine does um, does does indicate uh, 
that you know you can be cooperating in one sphere, one domain uh, along one dimension, uh, while competing on another with the same uh, with the same state. It strikes me that you know these the, these doctrinal statements of this continuum uh, in Joint Doctrine Note One One Nine, I believe, in the Joint Concept for Integrated Campaigning, defining it in that way is a little bit like defining an orange by saying it's on a spectrum of fruit, but it's not an apple, which isn't <laughs> isn't really that useful when 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 you think about it. It's not that difficult for you know, maybe I'm being naive here. It's not that difficult to to look at, say, the diplomatic instrument of power and see how negotiations are a competition. It's a little bit more difficult to see how the military competes uh, in a way that's kind of understandable and that you can conceptualize and see what it does, you know, short of armed conflict. Are we, in your opinion, has the, has the U.S. military sufficiently sort of carved out, framed its role in competition? It's not clear to me that it has. There is there is obviously a tremendous amount of analytical and prescriptive effort underway to specify more precisely the contours of competition. But at least, I mean, there's an article that I think it was Defense One published in, in May of last year in which uh, by Katie Bo Williams and she, she writes that in some conversations that she had with you know, officials at the Pentagon that, they, that those officials had difficulty defining um, what it means to compete, let alone how to compete, but defining even how, you know, what does competition mean with, with China and Russia. And, um, and I think that also one of the reasons that it's difficult to define competition with China and Russia in not only in the military sense, but also in a broader sense, is that the United States, if you look at the past, let's say, you know, let's say like the past 80 years, maybe the past 80 uh, you know, or 90 years, um, when the United States has, the United States is, is comfortable with and is accustomed to, you know, winning decisive victories. Uh, and so if you look at its struggle with Japan in the 1930s, its struggle with Germany in uh, in the 1940s, uh, its contestation with uh, the Soviet Union for the better part of half a century, uh, each of those out, each of those contests ended uh, dis- with a decisive outcome. So Japan was defeated, uh, Germany was defeated, the Soviet Union collapsed. The challenge in dealing with China and Russia is that now you can't theoretically disclaim the possibility of, let's say. A, an internal collapse in Russia or an internal collapse uh, in China that results in the disintegration of the Chinese Communist Party. You can't theoretically disclaim those outcomes, but I think realistically, it's likely that China and Russia in in some form or another are, they are, it would be more accurate for us to think of them as enduring realities than as disappearing regimes. And and that create and that reality, or I should say that that conclusion, um, it creates ambiguity, because if if you predicate your policy towards country X on the presumption that it is going to endure in one form or another, uh, maybe not in perpetuity, but for indefinitely, then it's much harder to think about what victory means. It's further difficult to think about what victory means in that context when you have a range of interdependencies with that same country with which you are nonetheless vigorously competing and to make matters even further complicated when your own ability to assure when your ability to to assure your own vital national interest depends on the maintenance of a baseline of cooperation with those countries and so with with China and Russia even though right now our our relations with both are are declining precipitously and it seems they're just you know getting worse by the day without any apparent uh, floor I think that most observers would agree that even if even if vistas for cooperation are diminishing by the day, and even if cooperation is not exactly the word on uh, sort of on the t- on the on the tip of people's tongues in in Washington, Beijing, and Moscow, that a world in which competitive dynamics wholly subsume um, and, or or displace uh, cooperative ones is not going to be a world that is conducive to the strategic conducive to strategic stability or conducive to the achievement of vital national interests. So uh, take the pandemic. I think that the pandemic is, is um, it's a, 
tragic uh, and tragically compelling illustration of this proposition. Um, imagine what kind of conversation you and I might be having. So here we are in mid-June of 2020. Imagine what kind of conversation we potentially might have had if the United States and China had collaborated at the outset of the COVID-19 pandemic the same way that they collaborated in the immediate aftermath of the global financial crisis. So in the aftermath of the global financial crisis, the United States and China engaged in emergency coordination. They activated the G20, and they played a very important role in preventing a recession from hurtling into another Great Depression. Uh, over the past 15 years, the, or 15, maybe 20 years, the United States and China also amassed a pretty pretty impressive record of healthcare cooperation. So in dealing with SARS, in dealing with H1N1, dealing with Ebola, and I think... Well, again, it's a counterfactual, but I, I think it's a plausible counterfactual that had the United States and China cooperated a bit more in the in December of 2019 or in January of 2020, I think that we may have been able to uh, prevent uh, a significant loss of life, avert much of the economic devastation that we're seeing. But the United States and China right now are rather than setting aside their strategic rivalry temporarily for the purposes of cooperating and not cooperating out of any sense of charity or altruism or starry-eyed notions of what cooperation can achieve, but purely for, from, a, from a realist perspective, just assuring their own vital national interests, the pandemic has actually proven to be an accelerant of strategic distrust. And that, that worries me. Um, what, what happens, what is sort of what is the future of, or what are the prospects for strategic stability? What are the prospects for great power cohabitation if, um, if, if great powers, and let's just restrict our focus here to the United States, China, and, and Russia, but what happens if those three great powers are either unable or unwilling to subordinate their strategic frictions to global imperatives? Um, and that's why in this way, when I look at, because, and again, coming to the US and China, uh, the pandemic is uh, has done uh, in, incalculable damage to both countries. Um, on the economic front, China hasn't hasn't been damaged as much from what we can gather, and on the health front, it hasn't been damaged from as much as the United States. But reputationally, the United States and China have both incurred enormous enormous damage to their credibility as stewards of the present order. Um, they have, I would say, lost. Uh, lost their their any claim that they might have had to be credible architects of a post-pandemic order, so they've incurred enormous reputational damage. Now, if if I think sort of more sensible guidance were prevailing, I think that the United States and China would say, "Gosh, um, in order to get our economies back on track, in order to restore or reverse some of the reputational damage that we've incurred, let's set aside our strategic rivalry and cooperate in in an emergency fashion." But when you are so thoroughly in the grip of strategic frictions that you are more focused on how I can make the other person suffer more, even if I end up damaging myself in the process, then what we are witnessing is not so much strategic competition as we are strategic nihilism. And that really, for me, is my, is my principal concern. When I, look at, when I look at the ravages being inflicted by the pandemic, when I look at the prospect of a a trilateral arms race whose norms and rules and arrangements are uh, non-existent. When I look at the the range of other transnational emergencies and crises that are are percolating, and I look at the disjuncture between the demands of our time and the realities of geopolitics, um, I see really the the emergence of strategic nihilism more so than strategic competition. Because and the reason that I make that distinction, it's it's not just some um, it's not some attempt at some facile attempt at nomenclature. I think it's an important distinction because competition is not intrinsically good or bad. And competition in some instances can actually be uh, quite beneficial. So for example, if if great powers um, compete to offer compelling uh, development packages or infrastructure packages or 5G packages to vast swaths of humanity across the developing world who have urgent developmental needs, that type of com competition can be quite useful. But when you have strategic frictions that become so overwhelming and so predominant that they preclude even the most self-evidently necessary baseline of cooperation, we've entered into a realm in which competition seems to be a euphemism. 
I guess I kind of want to then ask, you mentioned uh, earlier Chinese military modernization. Um, the United States military is obviously clearly in a modernization um, mode as well, uh, pursuing a number of new capabilities to replace the big five that came online in, in the 1970s. Um, we hear the president frequently talk about, say, hypersonic weapons. To what extent um, is using great power competition to sort of define or at least to describe uh, initiatives that we're undertaking, to what extent does that raise the risk of, say, uh, a new arms race? I think there's a very real risk. And what we are seeing right now, Reuters uh, Reuters had a good story the other, well, I shouldn't say a good story. It was a very sobering story the other day. And it was talking about the the specter of a trilateral arms race and as if as if the geopolitical situation weren't fraught enough with the uh, you know the pandemic and and with a range of other you know challenges but there is a very real risk and i think that if you know, so given you know given the withdrawal from the the us and russian concurrent con, uh, concurrent withdrawal from the inf given the likely expiration of new start uh, it's not clear to me that there is any major pillar left of the erstwhile nuclear order. It's not clear to me that with the likely expiration of New START that there is any evident constraint on uh, the modernization of uh, the uh, nuclear arsenals and missile uh, missile stockpiles in the United States, China, and Russia. And I mean, think about how difficult it was to define norms, uh, rules, and arrangements uh, to govern a bilateral arms race. Uh, namely during the Cold War between the United States and the Soviet Union, and think about the number of times when we came perilously close uh, to the brink of nuclear Armageddon, particularly in 1962 and 1983. And now, I was recently revisiting an article by Nick Miller and Vipin Narang that they published at the end of uh, last year in Foreign Affairs, and they said, we don't have the, the dynamics uh, the dynamics of deterrence, the dynamics of de-escalation in a trilateral context are going to be considerably more complicated um, than they were in a bilateral context. And we don't have a playbook. So I think that there is a real risk of a trilateral arms race because one, we're seeing we're seeing the disintegration of the last pillars of the erstwhile nuclear order. We are seeing rhetoric and actions in the United States, China, and Russia to modernize uh, nuclear arsenals and and missile uh, missile inventories. Um, we are seeing, and we're also seeing, uh, as as this great power competition paradigm becomes more entrenched, there's also a growing risk that great powers will frame and will increasingly come to perceive cooperative overtures as representing strategic concessions. And to the extent that that judgment takes hold in Washington and Beijing and Moscow. Um, it's difficult to see any self-evident restraints on the emergence of a new era of proliferation. And um, and when you think about a new era of proliferation that is intersecting with advancements in artificial intelligence, um, advancements in other frontiers of emerging technologies, that nexus... Um, so, so imagine just in terms of just dangerous to strategic stability, going from... Uh, a bilateral a bilateral arms race uh, before cyberspace and and think about how challenging it was to define uh, sort of the norms and the rules and the arrangements of that period and now imagine going from a bilateral arms race without a cyber element to a trilateral arms race with a very real and actively growing cyber component um, that you, you know, that human operators are still trying to understand and are very much in the nascent stages of beginning to understand. I just I think that the risks of that latter environment are substantially larger, and they also are substantially larger because they exist at a time when, um, as a result of the pandemic right now, but presumably going forward as uh, transnational emergencies are going to increasingly Im- constrain uh, policymakers' ability to think beyond their borders. I mean, just just look right now. I, I was just before our conversation. I was thinking about this. Think about the effect that this triplet of domestic crises here in the United States, namely uh, an ongoing health crisis, the attendant economic emergency, and now civil unrest, 
Think about how that triumvirate of domestic crises has undermined our ability to think about, let alone formulate a tempered diplomatic response to two very serious crises in the Indo-Pacific. Namely, uh, North Korea exploded its liaison office with South Korea. And perhaps even more ominously, uh, if you look at the the skirmish along the the disputed Sino-Indian border, which has been the deadliest uh, in over uh, 50 years, namely since 1967. And what happens when the world's lone superpower is so preoccupied with domestic unrest of a, whether it's economic, uh, cultural, political, that it is unable to train its bandwidth on external crises that the demand, if not its intervention, at least its attention. And so when I look at, you know, and, and I say this as somebody who's a congenital optimist, but when I, when I look to, when, when I look at where we are in the early 2020s, I see a number of alarm bells that are ringing. I worry that, uh, I worry that uh, in Washington, Beijing and Moscow, there is an increasing propensity to consider cooperative overtures as strategic concessions. I worry about the specter of a trilateral arms race, which is inter- which is itself uh, uh, requires tremendous amount of thinking, but intersecting with technological advances that we're struggling to understand. I worry about the extent to which transnational emergencies and challenges are intensifying the very forces of nationalism and populism that militate against the cooperation that will be necessary to address those crises. I think about the disjuncture, the growing disjuncture between the requirements of global governance and the requirements of global cooperation and the domestic forces that are militating against it. So you start, you start making that list and it's a very, um, and that, and that's, and I only gave a very, very thin gruel list. I mean, there are many more challenges that we could add to that litany that I, that partial litany that I presented, but it's, it's a very concerning picture. And I I would hope, uh, and, and, and perhaps, you know, hope springs eternal. I, I, I would hope that you know, the policymakers, and, and, I, and I don't want to just focus on the United States, China, and Russia, but that policymakers all around the world, um, having witnessed um, how, uh, you know, having witnessed the horrors of the 20th century, the devastation of the 20th century, um, would recognize the, the potential for escalatory spirals, uh, particularly with, and escalatory spirals with far more uh, deadly, you know, arsenals at our disposal, and I would hope that they would take away from the 20th century that um, policymakers, as much as they might be want to say so, uh, policymakers are not prisoners of historical determinism. There is no law, there is no law of history, there is no law of politics, there is no law of diplomacy that dictates that we be beholden to the mistakes that our predecessors made. Um, because to accept that conclusion, to accept the inevitability of a great power conflagration, to accept the inevitability of armed confrontation, to accept the inevitability that geopolitical competition will forever preclude geopolitical cooperation, um, is essentially to conclude that we have, as uh, as policymakers and really as human beings, that we have no agency. And that is a conclusion that none of us should be prepared to accept and none of us need to accept. Well, I think I'd like to close with, I guess, then one question, because, you know, I know that uh, you laid claim to uh, to being an optimist, but you are painting a picture of some very real risks associated with um, the the adoption of great power competition as a as a construct, um, as a as a guiding sort of construct. Um, If you had to give just, you know, two or maybe three recommendations to really make it work, not only in our favor, um, but in the favor of, you know, sort of strengthening a global rules-based order, uh, what would they be? So number one is we have to, and I'll, I'll just speak, you know, speak, you know, very, very humbly from, um, as an American, uh, to speak from an American perspective. Um, I think that any, any notion of or, or any effort to articulate a grand strategy, and I know that that the, the the debate about you know the feasibility of grand strategy and the necessity of grand strategy it's it's an evergreen debate, but it's one that's been newly invigorated by by a recent exchange in foreign affairs. Uh, but any attempt to fashion a grand strategy or any attempt to position America to think about America's external competitiveness must begin with 
a plan to restore America's competitiveness at home? Uh, what investments do we need to be making to uh, reinvigorate our economy, to ensure that our edifice of innovation is up to date, to ensure that we remain open to the world's most promising talent, whether it's in the, uh, students or, or, or entrepreneurs? How do we ensure greater domestic cohesion so that we are less susceptible to disinformation campaigns? We are less susceptible to efforts by competitors and adversaries to uh, divide and distract us uh, the way that, for example, during the Cold War uh, in the 1950s and the 1960s, the Soviet Union would often needle the United States for uh, racial inequities. And it was because we passed civil rights legislation in the 1950s and 1960s and we took uh, incomplete but nonetheless substantial and significant steps towards redressing those racial inequities that we were able to turn the narrative momentum back against the Soviet Union. So number one, we need to think about what makes America strong, resilient, and unique at home, whether that is uh, what investments we need to be making economically and technologically at home, what investments do we need to be making to strengthen our, our societal resilience, uh, what investments do we need to be making to strengthen our uh, or, or restore some sense of political uh, common purpose? So, so the first step is that, and, and there are many formulations of this proposition, but you know, foreign policy begins at home, I, I think is the title of, of, of one of Richard Haas's books, but it's very true. So number one, uh, before we think about the contours of competing of a competition, a long-term competition with China and or Russia, to make sure that we are maximally resilient and capable at home, number one. Number two, to uh, adopt a definition of competition or a construct of competition that is strategically solvent, that is fiscally solvent, and, name, and that is to say one that is circumscribed. Recognizing that the United States, uh, you know, the United States has to avoid the illusion of omnipotence that has plagued us for, uh, for much of the past 75 years. Um, the United States will not be able to repel uh, every Chinese advance, uh, rhetorical and or indeed, nor will, it be, nor will it be able to repel every Russian uh, advance in, in rhetoric and or deed. Um, we, have to, uh, we have to discipline ourselves not to overreact to every seeming Chinese and or Russian success. We have to recognize that not all Chinese and Russian actions and pronouncements will succeed. Even those that do succeed will not intrinsically be deleterious from a perspective of vital national interest. So, so appraising Chinese and Russian uh, competitive maneuvers with discipline and with judiciousness so that we focus more on an affirmative U.S. strategy, what is it that America is trying to do in the world, rather than being beholden to what China and Russia are, are doing. Um, and, and just a quick note on that point, um, it will be especially important as time progresses and as America's relative preeminence declines, that sense of discipline will become progressively more important. Um, look at what Al-Qaeda was able to do to America's sense of strategic orientation with $500,000. The 9-11 Commission estimated that it cost Al-Qaeda maximum a maximum of $500,000 to carry out the attacks of September 11, 2001. Two decades later, we still find ourselves in a very expansive and seemingly ever- shape-shifting and metastasizing global war on terrorism that has cost us trillions of dollars that has resulted that resulted in the emergence of the Islamic State and that continues to distort our foreign policy and impede our ability to focus on, on particularly China's resurgence. If a non-state actor was able to disorient U.S. foreign policy for two decades with an investment of $500,000, imagine what China and Russia, two very formidable state actors with serious material capacities could do to distract us. Um, so, so adopting a circumscribed, judicious, disciplined sense of competition. And three, kind of on, on the lines of what I was just sort of relatedly, um, to think less about how we repel what China and Russia are doing and think more about what it is that we are trying to achieve in the world. And that is to say, you could imagine one, you could imagine one competitive construct that frames the United States as being in indefinite, permanent contestation with China and Russia. Uh, we have to respond to whatever China and Russia do. But that's a foreign policy that is driven by and essentially determined by China and Russia, as opposed to articulating a foreign policy that sets out a vision of order that we seek to achieve in partnership with allies 
um, and a vision of strategy or a vision of competition or a vision of foreign policy in which competition with China and Russia is subsumed, under which uh, competition with China and Russia is subsumed. And that is to say, competition with China and Russia should assume a certain place within an overall vision of where it is that we would like to go in partnership with our allies. It should assume a certain place in our vision of what order we would like to achieve in partnership with friends and allies, but it should not be the determinant. Uh, and, and I realize that those are, and, and one last point, and then I'll, I'll stop. Um, it's not clear right now that the United States can drive a wedge between China and Russia. And I think that if anything, um, I think that to the extent that the construct of great power competition uh, juxtaposes and continues to juxtapose China and Russia, there's a risk that it actually drives them further together. So I don't think that the United States, um, the United States and China, and there's a certain organic uh, momentum in Sino-Russian relations long, that long predates America's current preoccupation with great power competition. And I think it's a rapprochement that would have continued to some extent, independent of what the United States did or didn't do. But having said that, at a minimum, in the short term, we should avoid taking actions that actively accelerate the the pace and intensify the, the scope of that rapprochement. But in the medium to long run, as the um, particularly as the economic gap between China and Russia grows more lopsided in China's favor, there may be opportunities for quiet, subtle diplomacy to reinforce certain concerns that Russia might have about placing too many of its strategic eggs in in China's basket. So those are, and I realize that none of what I've just said, those various principles or considerations, they don't amount to, and they're not intended to amount to, uh, or be distilled into a coherent, pithy construct like great power competition. Um, they're intended to think about how we might think about uh, competition more sustainably in a way that is strategically solvent, uh, fiscally solvent, and one that's also likely to um, elicit support from uh, the American public. And and ultimately, any concept of long-term competition with China and Russia will have to have a, a baseline of public support. And we have to recognize that the American public right now, it is weary of of ill or poorly specified indefinite interventions, particularly after the past two decades in the Middle East. It is domestically weary, given that the burgeoning of our debt, given the crises that the pandemic has laid bare here at home. So we have to be cognizant that the American public, um, if and as we embark on this, uh, this long-term competition with two formidable powers, the American public will rightly demand, how will we finance it? How will we reconcile our external posture with our domestic position, and what investments are we going to make in that external competition that will help shore up America's basis of competitiveness here at home? Well, Ali, thank you very much. Um, you know, great power competition is obviously an important subject. It's one that a lot of people are thinking about, and it's one that's not going to go away um, anytime soon. So really appreciate you taking some time and and sharing your thoughts and, and some insights on it. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's 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 an honor and a privilege to be here, and I I appreciate the opportunity to to share some thoughts on a topic that, as you said, I, I think is going to be with us for a long time to come. Thanks, Ali. Hey, thanks again for listening to the MWI podcast. One last thing before you go. If you aren't yet following MWI on social media, find us on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. It is a great way for us to stay in contact with the incredible community of listeners and readers who share our interest in topics related to modern war. All right. Thanks again. Thanks again.